I tell the athletes uh, about some of the studies I've seen, and I use this in the field of martial arts, and perceived effort, and you're looking at 100% effort, uh, whatever, 75, 50. And in a lot of the studies, using the, the force plate apparatus and using punches and kicks, the athlete would be instructed to uh, punch at 100%, 75%, 50%, and somewhere in between. And it was found that an 80% effort or perceived effort was a maximal power output rather than 100%. That was track and field coach Mike Goss talking about the importance of relaxation in athletic power production. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 85 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. We have a great guest for you today. Uh, one of my favorite coaches and people, Mike Goss. He is a track and field coach of over 25 years, physical education instructor for 20. And this is a guy who is just has a pure love of coaching athletes. And what he's doing is really something special. Uh, right now, he is currently coaching independently, uh, the track club Flying Without Wings. He's also an assistant at Parkview High School, which is the Georgia 7A state runner-up in 2017. I first met Mike at the Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar back in, it was either 2014 or 2015, uh, where uh, Anatoly Bondarchuk and others were speaking. And uh, I knew of Mike's work, though, well before that. I'd seen his uh, work on track and field, jumps, training articles on speedendurance.com. Mike is an experienced coach. He has a thirst for knowledge and lots of success to his name, coaching numerous track and field champions in the long, high, and triple jumps. His creative and unique practice methods contain ideas uh, that I think we can all utilize in our efforts to get the most of our out of our athletes uh, in building an awesome training environment, uh, whether you're a track coach, a strength coach, a swim coach. Um, just looking at how Mike structures his practices, creates competitions, rewards for his athletes, um, and you can just tell it, being an athlete in his group has got to be a lot of fun. And... Not only is Mike uh, a great coach, but he's also one of the most generous people I know uh, in terms of giving his time to coach those in need of assistance. His spirit and love for the sport is something I think we can all aspire towards. Um, some of the most memorable coaches, uh, personal coaches on my end, have, have been those who have just had this incredible generosity and spirit uh, of them. And I, I think that's something that I'm, I'm always working towards. I love talking to people like Mike in that regards. Uh, in terms of the, some of the articles that have influenced me that Mike's written, one in particular was his article, and this has stuck with me for probably about a decade. I don't know how long ago it came out, but it was on speed squats. So using a basically barbell half squats timed uh, on a timer and using, uh, say, doing five to eight reps, and that total set time, as soon as it increases a particular amount, that's your drop-off. It's kind of like the original VBT before we had Tendos and Bar Senseis and all those things. 
Um, stuff's been around, you know. Uh, so Mike's going to dig into that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to bringing you this episode with some of those uh, special strength methods that he talks at towards the back of the episode. Um, overall, we're going to cover uh, Mike's philosophy on training track and field jumpers, coaching rhythms, his approaches to plyometric training, uh, particularly in setting up competitions in plyometric training for his athletes, as well as the strength training for jumpers. So uh, awesome track and field episode today. Let's get on to episode 85 with Mike Goss. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Uh, it's great, Joel. I, I really uh, think it's a privilege to get to communicate with you. I've followed you for uh, several years now, and uh, it's a great topic. I'd love to share what I can. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, likewise. Yeah, yeah, before you met me, I definitely read a lot of your stuff on speed endurance and, and on jumps training, and I think we share a lot of uh, similar philosophy, and it's just always good. Uh, it's good talking jumps, you know. I mean, uh, for, for a website that was originally vertical jump-driven in many ways, I, I always love just being able to bring uh, jumps coaches on here, so... Uh, before we get uh, onto the training questions, uh, I'd like to kind of key into your background. So not only as a, a coach, uh, but uh, as an athlete. So growing up as an athlete, and then what led you into coaching, and then uh, what are you doing now? Yeah, well, I was a basketball fanatic. Uh, I loved it when I was a kid. I was only exceptional at one one part of the game, and that was shooting. And I always had a fascination for dunking a basketball. And uh, I'm really a type A overachiever. I had about a 24-inch vertical. Uh, I was 6'2". I had like an 8-foot-1-inch uh, standing reach. So a 24-inch vertical wasn't much of anything. And I remember dunking for the first time as a sophomore. And uh, even in that era, when there was very little information, there was no sports science. It just wasn't there. And uh, so we kind of uh, you know, flew by the seat of our pants. Uh, we wore ankle weights, which were terrible. Uh, I did stadium hops and stadium runs and things like that. And actually realized I love the training and the jumping more so than the basketball. Track and field for me was a, a junior high activity. We had no coaching. And uh, had some pretty good athletes in the area in the generation that I was taking part. But it was very embarrassing not to have the skill. So I gave up the uh, the track and field, although I really loved it, and uh, kind of a not-so-famous basketball career. I tore my ACL at 17, which was uh, really a career-ending injury back then. So from there, I was just an, a recreational athlete. Uh, what turned me on to jumping in a track and field-specific way was I read uh, the Soviet sports journals, that were translated by doc, Dr. Michael Yeses. And I got to meet him a few years ago. And that was really the area that got me interested in what we call now sports science. And they call it shock training, we call it plyometrics. And uh, I wasn't ahead of my time, but I had no one to discuss those things with because it was very novel here in the, in the States. Oh yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, I just to talk with like Dr. Don Chu and and you know people like the transition and how did plyometrics kind of work its way into the system? Uh, it's it's really interesting and just I think like American sports science in general or fitness in general. I think it takes a long time over here for things to really settle uh, down the right track. You know, like it's got to turn over a lot of t in a lot of ways and and really kind of be proliferated by experts who are doing it right before it. It really gets going in the right direction, but that's really yeah. cool and interesting. That interesting that you were kind of one of those first people in in, in when that was coming around, right? And you just mentioned Don Chu. Uh, he was one of the names when you had asked me who my influences were. Uh, he really made uh, plyometrics practical as training for a variety of sports, not just track and field specific. I know he had a book. I think it was called Power Tennis. And I studied a lot of his work and, and watched a lot of his uh, uh, his clinics and things like that on film. So he, he was a big influence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, he was definitely one of the pioneers. And, and yeah, it's it's interesting how have, uh, Dr. Yes is bringing things from the Russians, kind of filtering with the Americans, and and uh, definitely has changed the world of track and field uh, for the better. <laughs> Those Russians have some have some great high jumpers, uh, uh, at least, uh, and, and the methodology is certainly, certainly good and, and making a, an impact. And 
Uh, what are you? Uh, so where are you? Or what are you doing in the world of coaching right now? What uh, what athletes are you working with, and and uh, what's your what's your coaching like right now? Um, I'm coaching at a really uh, outstanding high school. Uh, it's Parkview High School in Lilburn, Georgia, and we're Metro Atlanta, which has a, a real legacy now and a history and having some great track and field programs and athletes. Uh, I'm a jump-specific coach. Uh, I work with tremendous coaches. We're very diverse in our talents, but we're diverse, and we have uh, in our ethnicity, uh, we have female coaches, we have male coaches, we have young coaches, very experienced coaches, and uh, it's just a great opportunity and a great situation that I'm in. I can concentrate on the jumps, which is my thing and my passion, and uh, above all, uh, we, we work with great young people and very, very talented, and I'm not really accustomed to that. I've, I've worked at levels from 8-year-olds to 24-year-olds, uh, very, very mediocre high school athletes to some Division One qualifying uh, for nationals high jumper. Uh, I've had a couple of very good high jumpers on the college level, and I would say good mid-level D1 com- competitors in the triple jump, the high jump, and the long jump. The youth track experience I've had has been tremendous because I've always stepped right into programs that were successful. And uh, I actually am a world record. I've coached a world record holder. He's 12 years old. He jumped 19, 11, and three quarters as a 12-year-old. That's not a bad long jump. (laughs) Someone mentioned that to me last year, and this is like 1998, and I looked it up. It, It is verified. And uh, there's his name still at number one, so I, I get to tell everyone I, I'm a world record coach. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I was going to say, too, um, I forgot to mention this, but you and I have such similar, I think, starts in the, in the whole jumps training and track training uh, kind of world. I, we actually both have the same standing reach. Mine's 8-1 as well. And I think I dunked a uh, pr- pr- pretty similar time uh, to you, and I was obsessed with jump training, the same thing, like basketball and trying to dunk was what got me into track and field like o- over time like that the the dunking was my initial love i feel like that's such a good way to learn like a good base for the track and field jumps like if that's your base basketball you, it's so much easier to teach uh an athlete who has that as a base like versus somebody who has not done those sports and you have to really kind of construct things out of thin air it's like it's much more difficult right and we're now seeing uh two foot jumpers who when you when you watch them from the waist up and you and you watch that that pattern that skill and that quickness they actually look like a one foot jumper they're they're taking off so far from the rim and they're so quick off the ground and uh, many of them are much better at a two foot uh vertical and uh to me looking at that as a track coach i would say well there's a hammer thrower or there's a shot putter because a two foot takeoff for many people, doesn't transition well to a to a single leg takeoff. Oh yeah, yeah. I've had those guys like uh, in high jump practice back in the day. Uh, for me at, at Wilmington, we would have guys. The, some of the sprinters would come out to high jump practice, and they would just do a front flip over the bar off two feet. They could do like six two or something. But if you asked them to go off one, it was just a nightmare. So <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about getting into a little bit of your philosophy on track and field jumps in general. So you've you've worked with a wide variety of athletes, and I know you've you've written a little bit on speed endurance and and things like that on your overall philosophy. Uh, what are some key tenets? You know, you're, you're coaching jumping athletes. What are some key things you're looking for? What are some things that describe your program? Well, I've I've learned, of course, a lot of this has been trial and error, and again, I've learned some from experts. Strength is such an important part of the jumping. And in a high school environment with coaching a lot of a lot of athletes at one time of various ability levels, it's kind of difficult to attack that uh, in a way that's going to impact every level that you're with. So uh, we use a lot of body circuits, uh, you know, various push-ups and sit-ups, uh, core, core strength. Um, multi-hops and bounds and skips, really learning the basics of what jumping really is. Uh, And we start with very remedial, 
skipping, hopping. Uh, I'm big on force application using uh, what I call, we, we do like rocking chair walks. We do bunny hops or pogo jumps, uh, working on really using that stretch reflex and feeling the Achilles and feeling the, the not just the ball of the foot, but feeling the entire foot in uh, making uh, your impact on the ground and uh, reacting quickly. Those kind of things are very important. Running technique is vital. Uh, we get so many athletes, and you see this even at the college level, who really have a very poor uh, running posture and running technique. Uh, again, you got the shin angle reaching out in front, which is a death sentence actually to fast running and jumping. And trying to correct those things, I work with very good sprint coaches. And when I get the athletes over on a runway, whether it's a high jump, triple jump, long jump, we have to look at those things because a good takeoff in the jump, it, it has to be preceded by a good run. And uh, that's common knowledge now in the sport. But we have to be very patient in how we teach that and that we're observing that. Uh, I get lost in the passion of seeing someone jump far. And uh, that happens to me because I love the jumping so much. And I have to make sure that I tune myself in to the fundamentals. Uh, but I look at the force application, uh, the running technique, and one thing that I'm really beginning to better understand and emphasize is the rhythm of an approach, uh, the penultimate going into the next to last step, those last three steps, how critical they are, but also beginning at the beginning, uh, a standing start, rock back, dry phase to an acceleration. And uh, those things, uh, they're teachable and the young athlete can learn those things if we're not rushing through it and uh, just looking for the best jumpers out there because we have to coach from the, the C level to the A level at the same time. So that's one of uh, the major challenges that I see in teaching jumping. Sure. And so speaking of rhythm too, and maybe this ties in a little bit, I know one of the, the key things that you had talked about in your articles was the idea of making it look easy. And so could you talk a little bit about that and then maybe even get into uh, what you were talking about with, with the rhythm. So how do you go about teaching that rhythm in terms of uh, your, when your jumpers get on the runway? Sure. And uh, I, I like to make it look easy. I think that's an Italian uh, spezzatura. A uh, word that I used, I like. I like. I'm big on vocabulary and using interesting words. Um, I t I tell the athletes uh, about some of the studies I've seen, and I use this in the field of martial arts and perceived effort. And you're looking at 100% effort, uh, whatever 75, 50. And in a lot of the studies, using uh, the the force plate uh, apparatus and using punches and kicks the athlete would be instructed to uh, punch at 100%, 75%, 50%, and somewhere in between. And it was found that an 80% effort or perceived effort was a maximal power output rather than 100%. And I tell the athletes, we often hear about things, I'm in a zone, it felt so easy to score those 30 and uh, you know the swing of the bat. You know the baseball. It looked as big as a as a, a cantaloupe. And you know we've heard those kind of things as we've coached and been sports fans. But uh, we see the ease at which great athletes seem to run fast and seem to jump very high, and like the rhythm even of a javelin thrower that throws so far, and that tempo and that rhythm, they have to create that themselves. And we can use a cadence, which I think is good. Uh, they have to internalize that, you know, like one, two, and jump. Uh, I use flat pop, uh, trying to, to get them to understand uh, getting on top of and hitting a flat penultimate step and then getting a nice aggressive plant without mushing out and those kind of things. So rhythm, uh, I feel like in saying make it look easy has a lot to do with that, the thoughts of rhythm and what works best for the individual athlete because they do have to create themselves. And I try to throw out some drills that 
encourage and to some degree force that. And it's like running through banana hurdles with short, uh, short spacings for a quicker stride that is vertical rather than reaching. And then coming off those hurdles with a takeoff and having uh, a designated spot for your takeoff. So your penultimate and your takeoff step are rapid and aggressive. Uh, little things like that can be done with very young athletes. Uh, I actually got some of those drills from uh, Dennis Nobles, who was a great coach at Florida State. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I really, uh, that's really good stuff with, uh, like, I like mini hurdles. I, I've always enjoyed using mini hurdles and, and rhythms and to create the rhythms or help help athletes with that. I Especially young athletes, too. I, th- I think there's so much there. I'd like to get in a little bit to your your ideas on plyometric training. So, what are some key what are some key plyometrics that you like using, and at what age do you start implementing them? I mean, I'm sure with your young jumpers, like just the jumping events and low level remedial uh, movements is probably uh, a large amount of what you do. But what's your approach to plyometrics in your populations? I love plyometrics. Uh, I try to stay low volume, very high quality. And uh, that's, again, it's for teaching uh, proper techniques, but it's also especially for injury prevention. Uh, you know, many of the uh, gurus in the plyometric field, you know, you spe- as far as a young person goes, if you're playing hopscotch, if you're skipping rope and things like that, those are t- that is a level of plyometrics. Um, I've done some testing where I create my own uh, series of a short approach, multiple hops and hops and jumps. And it's similar to one of the ideas that I got from you uh, in a bounding uh, series of various distances with targets. Uh, you would have a, a, a long bound and then followed by a short bound and a, maybe a medium distance, just varying. And I found those things to be extremely helpful. Uh, number one, you are developing that, uh, that elastic or resilient strength. Uh, you are developing some eccentric strength because of the the patterns to me that when you slow down and speed up, different impacts. But as a jumper, uh, you're learning about steering, uh, which can become, you know, like innate uh, as you get better and better, and some people much better than others by nature. Uh, But steering, force application, again, uh, changing the rhythm and the tempo, uh, understanding what uh, the degrees of force that you can apply and should apply, that it's not always the same, uh, especially in, in running, like going from a, a slower run to a faster run and how it feels. Uh, I love plyometrics. Do a lot of remedial hopping and skipping. And surprisingly, uh, again, because of our technology and the games that we have being so electronic, staying off the playground, and minimal phys ed and things like that. Uh, I'm amazed at the young people who play sports that never really learn how to skip or hop athletically. Um, it's very important. You're going to watch, you know, the dorsiflexion. I watch, I call it the donkey kick. Often when we're doing some of the activities, uh, the, uh, the athlete, will take the free leg and they'll literally uh, flex it and just hitch it backwards. And every time you do that, obviously you're going to throw your hip into a forward rotation. And that alone is a, is a big negative in developing uh, as a proper running and jumping technique. Uh, So I try to pay attention to that, the body position when you are hopping and skipping, um, galloping, Galloping is a real big thing on learning the penultimate step, uh, how it feels, and the advantages of having a good one. And you can use different uh, lead-ups for that. Uh, Teaching the triple jump, obviously, uh, we will use hula hoops, targets. Uh, I like to start from standing positions or one or two uh, step takeoffs. I feel the same about bounding, that it's a progression. Uh, coin from uh, Bushek Snyder, a baby bound series where the free leg is held in front of the body and the movement 
is it's a very small movement with a flat rolling rocking chair contact of basically just hopping forward to the side, uh, alternating legs. And uh, that free leg position is for hip alignment. So you learn to understand the, the feeling that the foot is contacting just underneath the hip or barely in front of the hip, but also for uh, postural control and uh, very vital things like that. And do that as a beginning. I'm learning now in how I'm seeing my own coaching. I love jumping so much, and I want to see that that takeoff and that elevation and those types of things. But I'm learning, and it's really a basic foundation. I'm using a standing start, a drive and acceleration drills before we jump. I will use that as the primary part of practice. And then basically, if it's a novice, I will literally let them play to jump, uh, just trying to get a feel for enjoying the, the event, enjoying the, uh, the feel of the takeoff. And obviously, we can evaluate as coaches those who take it by nature and have those, uh, those skills or those abilities. And uh, uh, again, being type A, I'll coach anyone, anyone who's willing to discipline themselves and wants to uh, practice and learn and work hard, uh, I'm going to be there for that young person, whether they're very skilled and talented or not. And I just look at that as that's a responsibility and an accountability of, of being a true track coach. Yeah, I like how you mentioned gallops. I, I think I was talking about that with Lee Taft a little bit. And like, it's like the forgotten skill. Like people don't, um, people don't use it that much. It seems anymore. You don't see a whole lot of like posts about it or anything like that. But like you said, it's, it's a great tool for developing the penultimate. And it, I mean, I've, I'll even have like, you know, my like, uh, tennis, uh, college tennis players do galloping. And it's amazing actually some, how bad some people are at it who don't have a jumping background. It's, it's so awkward for some people, some people who haven't been doing the, that type of thing. But I, I like the movement a lot. I, I really I really enjoy using it. And what, what are, are some things they're looking for in particular with those, with gallops? Um, again, I call it the rocking chair. It's a slight heel to rolling contact. Uh, really working on get, getting away from a toe strike and even off the ball of the foot. Uh, we still see a lot of toe running, and it seems like a cardinal sin that uh, most coaches understand that that's not the proper way or the best way for an athlete to accelerate and run fast. But in a plyometric activity, being up on your toes is is pretty much a it's it's a how would you say it uh, formula for disaster. Uh, again, and that's the part of uh, rotating forward, not getting force application as it should be optimally and i think also a lot of the plyometric activities and uh using the glute and the hamstring the posterior chain to create force and create power is still underestimated and misunderstood by many of the athletes that that i'm seeing and we have to teach it by how it feels probably as much or more so than how it looks. I love straight leg bounding from uh, moderate uh, intensity, which is not, not a big leg swing out front, to a really intense for distance. I think single leg bounding is really good. And uh, again, you're applying the force, and you're also really activating the glutes and the hamstrings, which is going to help prevent injury. But it's also going to show by the feeling of that uh, that contraction or that force that the athlete puts forward, they're going to see this is where I get power. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I definitely am a big fan of straight leg bounding, and I do. I the longer I've been in coaching, the more I realize that it, allowing an athlete to feel something is much often much better than saying put your hand or leg here like if they can feel it and they can make it a learning process to feel something 
they're going to retain it so much better and they can take it and utilize it in their movements. And I like that idea of, of uh, posterior chain tra- training being a feeling more than just a, a position or a drill or something like that. I think that's great. Yes, and it's real easy to incorporate strength training uh, using the, uh, I call them Russian hamstring curls. I think some people call it the Nordic curl, uh, where the ankles are held or braced behind and you do a, a really strong, slow movement, keeping your posture upright and then lowering your yourself to the ground, pushing yourself back up. That That little exercise right there I think is one of the best things we can do. And I think it's much better than your basic hamstring curl, uh, the curl machine, which is the traditional bodybuilding uh, piece of equipment. I yeah, agreed. And plus two with like track athletes, you know, you're on the track, you know, so you have weights. It's probably one of the best strength movements you can do and you don't need a barbell to do it. Just, uh, you just pair off and just get, get rolling on it. And that thing is intense too. I mean, shoot, I, for at least sprinters and horizontal jumpers, I would value that over uh, what you could do for a back squat or a front squat. I mean, that's I, my experience. The fastest athletes have always been the best uh, at that. The strength in that movement. Oh, I totally agree with that. Uh, and it's so much. Uh, it's effective in preventing injury. Everything is so. You know, we call it uh, the mirror. The mirror muscles that you see on the front, uh, kind of the bodybuilder's image. And uh, the, the quads get so much work in so many different, you know, types of movements that we just do basically in day-to-day activity. I was a very weak athlete in the glutes and hamstrings. It's very easy to see athletes who are not really turning those things on. And your natural athlete tends to be someone, and of course, you can anatomically, or what do you say, with the somatotypes we can actually see the people when you see that musculature you can see it acting and a person like me who is very average we have to be taught that that part of the uh, that part of a movement and it is very possible to do that oh pistol squats there's so many things uh, I was teaching a pistol squat uh, progression to a few athletes last week and I told them I said you know we can do squats that will affect your posture, your balance, your coordination, your range of motion. And I said, if you can do a pistol squat correctly, you're an athlete. And we worry about a back squat and where are we going to do 240 or we're going to do 280 and that type thing. When the movements of a pistol squat, and then you can add a light uh, kettlebell or dumbbell in hand, so many ways that we can develop strength right there on the track. Uh, hand on the fence, uh, there with a with a partner that's uh, doing a you know a reasonable job of spotting you and uh, making it uh, use cueing to make sure that the movement is correct. And uh, it's a great exercise, even if you're only going quarter of the way down because that's all you can. Uh, there's so many things that we can do, free body. And I love weight weight training and conditioning. I've certified in several areas with the strength USA weightlifting at one time and uh, the USTFCCA has an excellent track and field strength and conditioning certification uh, it's very very uh, detailed and you have to do a I think a 10-week uh, cycle of training for 10 different types of athletes so many things that we can do as coaches to get better and I love the, the nuts and bolts, and I love the uh, all of the fancy things. I love those things, but when it comes down to really training and learning and the athletes getting better, it's typically those simpler activities and simpler movements that allow them to really progress. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and yeah, the more the longer I've been going <laughs> through this whole thing, and, and you know, bar, and I, I'm I'm the same way. I love barbell movements. I've been lifting weights since I was 12, and uh, I I tell you what, yeah, like pistol squats and, and Nordic hamstrings are variations of Nordic hamstrings. Just doing those two, just doing it like after practice, having a lot of intent behind it and focus, and and a lot of intent behind something that's really simple. 
there's so much you can get out of it and, and being good at that before you necessarily would be really good at a squat too i think kids can get a lot out of that especially yeah like young club track athletes and like middle school and that that range um before they get to high school and start start loading it up i i think it's a great foundation yeah we uh we have a few athletes that are definitely division one caliber uh some are underclassmen and uh, we have a couple that have already been offered scholarships and i take a few of those kids and we've we've gone in the weight room we have a great weight room it's just it's no frills weight room we have 20 power racks and uh, i purchased for myself and for the teaching the olympic training bar which is like a a 10 kilo i think it's a 10 kilo bar like 22 pounds and with some of the plastic olympic size plates and we do a progression of uh, high pulls high pull shrugs using hip extension and then going into the full uh, clean and i love the snatch but we're using very very light weights i'm going like uh 20 kilos 44 pounds and it's a challenge to teach a 14 to 16 year old the proper even a power snatch which is one of my favorite movements but when they get that that skill and they're going to feel the glutes they're going to feel their feet pushing through the floor they're going to extend and uh i think that is specific and very much ap- applicable to what they're going to do on the track and uh there are coaches who who disagree and feel that you know you just build your basic strength in the weight room and then you go out and you do your skills on the track and i think there's a carryover for all those things oh yeah yeah no doubt i i mean i definitely think that especially olympic lifts too like starting with just the the lightest weight and just being as explosive as possible and in a power snatch too somewhere you can go all the way up it's like it's almost like the next level of a med ball throw in any in many ways and uh athletes can get so much out of that and i i wanted to chat a little bit more too you mentioned your plyometric complex just a little bit ago and i always love plyometrics and complexes and how you're combining things and you mentioned it was like a multi-jump or a short jump complex i think um if i'm correct uh, could you expand a little bit more on how you complex the plyometrics or if you do like competitions or, or anything like that based on different uh activities how do you how do you set that up oh for your absolutely practices? yeah i love i love the competition and uh if uh i have again we we'd uh discuss some of the articles that I have uh, on speedendurance.com there is one uh, and it's uh, using plyometric oh I think I call it I'm sorry the jumps challenge and I I started this with uh, university Kennesaw State University and what we did we'd do standing starts pushing off both feet using multiple hops and skips and bounds and variations in between and uh, we would uh, test and measure and we had five specific jump skills or or variations of jumps and uh, even at that level I gave awards I I gave little stuffed animals Uh, I made the t-shirts flying without wings make it look easy and uh little certificates and we would have our champion and in our women's and in our young men's and they really get turned on to that and it is fun it's very challenging challenging it's very competitive and even at the college level it's very enjoyable and it's one of those workouts where you are getting the juices flowing and working very hard but you're having fun you're not thinking about the labor of doing a workout and we would use that as a pretest, in uh, you might say post-test, or in certain phases of training. And doing this with the high school athletes, it's it's really a blast doing that. And uh, there's so many variations of things you can do. Uh, we had discussed med ball. Uh, I love med ball training using multiple jumps. Uh, we would do uh, say all kinds of med ball throws, standing med ball throws with just a hip extension. Uh, underhand, overhead, from the side, uh, the push, the push press, like a shot put, and going from that series 
to a jump jump throw and that's really a motor skill in itself coordinating the the arm swing and the jumps and then the release of the ball uh, it's a great way for testing it's a great way what I call a phase two of a warm-up when you're going to do a, a speed power day with plyos or you're going to do a lot of active jumping and uh, following the general warm-up to use those activities uh, med, med balls are just under underestimated if it's supervised especially and you have a system of five specific throws here and five there and five over here uh, it's good to use when you're doing acceler block accelerations like 30 meters and uh, you do a, a very uh, high intensity short run and for a recovery using a med ball series before you go into your your second set of runs uh, those things I think uh, have much more value than many of us understand because we think of so many things as warm-ups and, and a good solid warm-up basically is a workout in itself um, again the the plyometrics especially if I'm looking at teaching the long or triple jump I'm looking at short approaches because I'm trying to teach the approach at the very beginning which is may seem op sound opposite and I used to do the jump back to the runway but now I go straight to the runway and then when we're doing our short jumps we actually can include plyos there uh, with short run approaches just bound 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 into the sand uh, the athlete can take a shoe and we can mark areas uh, have a common takeoff take that shoe out into the pit mark it on the side and really challenge one another in distances and at the same time, a coach looking at it with the fundamentals. I'm big when it comes to, to jumping. I use the common word dorsiflex, dorsiflexion, but also you push and you power through the ground for distance. You do not reach in track and field. And so many of the athletes, they see these beautiful postures in the triple jump in various activities, even like hurdling, and they see themselves as like uh, extended, but they're not thinking of being extended, which is really holding the posture. They're reaching, and reaching is one of the worst things you can do as a track athlete when it comes to trying to put force into a sprint or into a jump. Yeah, uh, going back to the competitions, I was just thinking about this as like some things kind of came together and clicked for me as you were mentioning it. But, uh, and I've heard this before, like how just how hard college or high school athletes will compete for just something like a simple t shirt. Like, I think that it means so much to them. I think we, we kind of underplay that sometimes how, how much a simple, like just a simple prize or reward can mean for athletes. And, uh, and yeah, like, like it takes the, the competition aspect takes the fact that you're, quote-unquote training like out of it they to them they're just having fun and, and their movement is probably a lot more pure and uh you know the neural cost almost is lower uh I, I, to me i i've always valued the idea of competing but to me like the idea of little rewards in there like kind of pushing that envelope it makes it more fun adds to like the relational aspect uh between athlete and coach and i think that's cool that you made uh, made like the little the little rewards like that for those groups to me that that says a lot to the the nature of that experience for them yeah it's it's fun for me because I, I again I love jumping I love the sport of track and field and the jumping events so much I can watch athletes do any type of a jump workout for hours and hours you know yeah I think you and I both both have that uh, pathology uh, within our spirit, so to speak, that we we just enjoy watching the art of, of human movement. But nothing turns me on more as a coach than to see what we would call a C or even a D-level competitor start to improve and literally put feet onto the improvement because there's so much margin for improvement. And to see that in those athletes Track and field is one of the few competitive sports where you can be that average athlete, B 
be able to compete at a junior varsity or a low-level varsity level until the championship season, and you're not going to sit a bench. And that's what we really need to emphasize in promoting track and field. And also, the way I, the way I look at track as far as promoting it to the general public, I think if people understood more of what a track athlete does in training, which might seem boring, but when they see an accomplishment out on the track, the problem with track in America is we have to wait for things to happen. And I think the American sports fan, we want that instant gratification and we don't want to get bored. And uh, it's a tough thing about track and field. Uh, that's why I think introducing uh, track and field to the uh, non-experienced or non-track fan, going to an indoor meet, is a circus to me, and I absolutely love it. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah, I, I know those indoor meets can be absolutely crazy, especially uh, indoor high school meets, as I remember from my recruiting days back in Division Three. Is like, but again, yeah, I loved it too. It's like super busy, super crowded, but I mean, track just being the pure art of human movement i mean as at competition like there's my two favorite things in life i think uh there's really nothing better i hey, i was gonna ask you just so those, the plyometric uh competitions like what do those look like were you doing like a standing triple a standing five for distance uh med ball like how did you how did you uh put those together what what events events yeah. were there yeah great 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 question uh it would be a progression and you're right we would start with the standing triple then I would do a series. Everything was pretty much four contacts and then a landing. Uh, we would do a, a standing uh, bounding drill. So you would execute like four bounds with a landing in the sand and basically measure it just like you're in a meet measuring. Uh, then we would go like uh, in, like multis, uh, starting with uh, two hops and then bound, bound, jump to sand. Uh, then I would even switch it to this. We would go standing start two bounds then a hop hop jump into the sand so you're finishing your last three uh touches off one leg single leg coming off of that two two bounding steps really just variations like that uh you can make it as simple as uh as needed and you can make it as challenging uh for any for any level of an athlete and, and right, uh, kind of pyramiding it, like if you were uh, working on a maximum lift in the weight room, you would go, say, 220 in the bench to 230, 240, 245, that sort of thing, just progressing it to a greater uh, technical difficulty and more of a challenge to uh, their jumping abilities. Yeah. yeah, I like that a lot, like the idea of, just like you were talking there, the idea of four contacts being very simple construct and just throwing different challenges, flavors, rhythms, alternations into that, and it's still a competition. I, I think that's so cool. And to me, there's always really nothing cooler than just taking something that's simple and standard and standardized, making a competition out of it, then throwing some little twists and turns in here or there and, and seeing what athletes do. I, I like that a lot. Yeah, and like uh, I know you and I both have a great affinity for the high jump. Uh, you can take even the high jumpers and do similar similar things. Uh, standing jump off both feet, which actually used to be an event many many years ago, and uh, kind of a novel thing, but something that is plyometric and explosive. And then go back to say a, a two step high jump. I really like to work on the off leg and have a left-footed jumper have a practice where they'll go and take five, six, or seven jumps, whatever, off the opposite side. And uh, I guess you say, uh, I think they call it bilateral bilateral transfer. I think there's a real something really to that in developing the skill uh, for that jumper. I know the best jumper I'm coaching. He is his he's ambidextrous so well with both legs. He can go to the opposite side and high jump, and his technique is basically as good as his uh, his dominant side. 
and I think those things are also good for balancing out, you know, the the stress on the joints and the range of motion and that thing. So we get, you know, a, you know, are you going to carry that book bag on your left shoulder all day? Or are you going to alternate it to your right shoulder? That that kind of thing of preventing imbalance. Yeah, alternation. Yeah, I was just learning about that in my uh, posture restoration biokinematics course. The the ability to alternate for your left side to your right side, not always being on one side. And yeah, I used to back at Wilmington. We would always finish uh, our high jump practices with five to ten, like three step scissor jumps or high jumps, and off your bad leg or your non-dominant leg. And it's always interesting to see how either good or awful some people were at that. But it was we made them do it either way. But I like uh, I like that I like the idea of yeah just making a making a competition for for either yeah high jump as well and triple and. Uh, it's 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 really great stuff and, and seeing what athletes end up doing with it all. Uh, I wanted to, too, before we uh, finish up with our time, is I'd love to get into your talk on uh, ideas on strength training and for the jumping events. And one of the most memorable articles that you had written that had a big impact on me was uh, some of uh, Starzynski's work uh, and speed squats and squats for time. Uh, I feel like you know now velocity-based training is the big thing, but I'm like, you know, people were doing that back in the 80s and 90s. They just counted timed reps you know it wasn't it was, and there's a rhythm to it you time reps too but anyway sorry i don't want to get too far into it before i actually you know have the pass the baton off to you with the question but uh what's a little bit of your uh experience with uh strength training for your jumpers and then the element of time yeah starzinski uh, i love that guy's work to me he was a pioneer way ahead of his time and he was a great polish uh, coach and uh I guess in some ways a sports scientist. The way that I used his squat progression, it was really it was more simplified, and I'll try to make this understandable in a simple way. We would take a box of a certain depth and perceived perceived when I say perceived effort, uh, start with a poundage that was comfortable for that athlete. And let's, we'll say it's uh, 150, 150 pounds. And they would do the box squat. And I would time six butt touches. And that, that I know that seems so, kind of silly, but this is most accurate. I could do it as far as, you know, handheld. And start in the position the first time that the butt touched the uh, box. That's when the stopwatch would go off and start. And then the sixth time, the, uh, the bottom touch the box that would be the stop and i would take that time record it on a dry erase board then they would go up uh what two to five kilos that's what uh five eleven pounds or ten you know five to ten pounds typically we would go up about ten pound progressions and if the athletes they learn to understand this they start recruiting more motor units and actually they're progressing sets as the poundages go up, they're actually going faster. And, uh, you know, that, so there's a little bit of learning there. And then eventually, Starzynski, his program was to do his half squat or full squat using that progression. And when you dropped a full second off of your series, that's when you stopped. What I learned about a Tendo unit uh, I was in uh, discussion with the Florida State track and field uh, strength coach several years ago, and I asked him about Tendo, and that's really the concept in a more specific scientific testing measure, and how they would use that unit is he would look at uh, the force being exerted or a speed of a rep. I don't really, I've never really watch Tendo being used and they use that same philosophy once an athlete show slowed that bar movement to a certain uh, diminished return that's when they stopped the lift because they weren't working on tactical strength they weren't working on strength endurance they were working on maximal efficiency at a rapid speed and that's really what the speed squad is about I think it's safe and uh, it's easy to set up and do uh, if you're paying attention as that person with the stopwatch. And it's fun to watch that progression 
Uh, I have that also on one of the blogs uh, in the jumps challenge. I included that as something that you would do in the weight room. Uh, specifically, that would be a challenge individually so that athlete could actually see uh, more than like a 1RM. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with a 1RM or maximal lift, but I never did. Uh, and I, for me, it was for safety and observing the technical abilities. I would go three, three reps as far as the RM would just be 3RM. Three, three and there are formulas where you can predict the 1RM. And it, it's really a moot point unless you're being profiled in some kind of a big training journal and that sort of thing. Uh, I just never used a 1RM. And I always used perceived effort as far as picking that weight on what to start with. And a lot of it was just a matter of time constraint and uh, record-keeping can get really complicated for me because I'm kind of a, I'm a manic scatterbrain kind of guy. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, it's, it's good stuff. I, I, I really like what you said about Tarzinski being so far ahead of his time. Cause every time I read through that book, his explosive training for all sports, I'm like totally blown away. I mean, I think we forget how good some of the sports science was from like seventies, eighties, nineties. And, I, I, yeah, that, that article that you wrote on that, which I'll definitely post in the show notes, I thought was excellent. And as you're actually mentioning, like with your conversation with the Florida strength coach and the tendos, I think this is a big distinction is tendos measures concentric. It only measures your concentric force producing ability. But when you time like oh. a set of six, that's, that's, right. that's, that's contraction, relaxation, it's eccentric strength, it's coupling. I think it's actually, I, if I, for track athletes, if I was looking at jumping or speed, I would actually put a lot of my money on doing a set time set of six. I think the the biggest thing you get from a tendo is probably just starting on the blocks. Um, that's my two cents, at least not at all. Yeah, that makes sense. And you use uh, some terms there, uh, contraction, relaxation. That's one of the things that I think about an Olympic movement, especially a moderate resistance that the athletes can learn that there is a, I call it bracing and yielding and triple jumpers. I have a really good triple jumper, but he is so tense in his air t when he's in the air transitioning to the next takeoff. He has so much tension in his body and it, and it builds by the time he gets to his jump phase, he he's like, he's going to explode. <laughs> and again, we know, you know, make it look easy. We watched Christian Taylor. We watched, I watched Jonathan Edwards and Kenny Harrison when they were in their prime. I saw them in person and everything looks easy. And, uh, there's something to that. I think physiologically and technically that when an athlete begins to feel that and understand it, it's going to make them a better, a better track athlete. Yeah, and you said that too. I think I think to my time uh, using those movements with the strength training for track athletes and, and high level or college track athletes and athletes who are prone to grind on like a single rep. Or as soon as you time it and say do five or six, you never really see the strained look on their face as much because it's not possible. If you're if you have to contract, relax, contract, relax, it puts a little bit different paradigm on what you're trying to accomplish. And, and there's relaxation forces, at least, you know, for top speed and looking at EMGs, like the, the pulses that muscles go through, it's like happens so fast. Like there's such a premium on being able to contract or relax things. And I think it's underappreciated. Yeah. You know, I recently heard was Dave Karen, who's a USATF uh, high jump develop. Uh, he's, he's basically the coordinator of the women's program and he's a brilliant guy. And he said, you know, you can actually have too much strength. Now that sounds, would you say counterintuitive or counterproductive, but the time it takes to exert maximal force is much longer than a foot contact in track and field. And when you do understand that, there isn't a reason to be squatting 700 pounds when you can't quickly, you know, turn that into a bang for your buck. And I call it moving band strength. 
So you have to balance between, you know, what is uh, maximal. And to me, that's more of uh, developing strength in your connective tissue. Uh, obviously, there are benefits in it. And many of your great athletes have tremendous strength. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, yeah, one thing I always like doing too was uh, if, if we would do like a heavier set of squats to at least finish with a couple sets of speed time squats too, just to be like, okay, we're going to at least finish with some, some efficiency, some, some good coupling and some good relaxation ability and, and things like that. I always felt like walking out of the way room, having done something fast like that as the last thing was, was pretty beneficial. Oh, I was going to ask you too, with your experience in using those time squats, what kind of weights did the men and women jumpers generally end up working with? That's a great question. See if I can remember. We had about, he was a near 50 foot triple jumper. And, and again, this was college, uh, not high school. I was surprised. I had two jumpers that could easily do plyo routines. And I'm talking about hops onto and off continuous off an 18 inch box which is not recommended for many people. They were getting up into pounds, I think up to like 275. One may have been over three. It was a lot, but we were using, it was not anywhere close to a full squat. One of the guys I know was going over 300. And that was for the times, the time reps, like quick reps? Yes, the time squat. But this guy could do the Russian hamstring he could do those things. He could do like three at slow speed. I mean, he, he could hold uh, half that position and then go all the way down, touch, and come immediately right back up. Oh, he had phenomenal. My, he had phenomenal posterior core strength. My hamstring would explode. I mean, yeah, Don, too, was saying the same thing about like the, the Russian like elite juniors who were like 55. They could just bust out sets of 10 of that, like – I'm just like, man, that's, I have such a long way to go. I've always been weak like that. It always blows my mind to see how strong those athletes are. Hey, how, how, so how fast were those guys, like 275 to an 18-inch box? How fast were they doing their reps at, at that, that pace? Like what a, like what a second or around that? Or is that about the time that they were operating under? Yeah, you know, and it, it's on that. It, it's charted on there, some, some of those. And, uh, but I could I can't specifically remember. Yeah, but it was there was the emphasis was on being expedient. I I think my Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think I I know my my best athletes were doing like I we would just do body weight or body weight plus 30 and they were they were usually hitting five reps at just over 4 seconds. Um so I I mean I I could still see that being something a really good strong triple jumper being able to do that in not too much time and Yeah, yeah it's such a great drill. Well, you just gave me a great idea, and you know how the simple things mean so much. Uh, in an environment uh, with a number of people and for safety, body weight up to maybe a bar or a weighted vest is a tremendous way to do that because it can be done in, it can be done in front of the, the first set of bleachers in, in a stadium. Oh, yeah. And you could literally do, uh, gosh, I mean, as long as you've got in like partners, you could do six, seven athletes at a time, and uh, you just need the stopwatches and somebody paying attention. That's a that's a great idea. I'm gonna have to consider that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I meant sorry. Well, that is a good. Actually, that is a good idea. I'll have to think about that with like uh, uh, young or club track athletes. Would be kind of cool. But I uh, actually we use body weight. Like the body weight was on the bar. So if you weighed 150, you put like 150 on the bar, 180 on the bar. But for, oh yeah, okay, I got you. But yeah, that, for for good. young athletes, that'd be great too. Yeah, like eight year olds, ten year olds. I think that would be fantastic. Um, yeah, just like just making it fun, you know. Like if they're gonna do a movement, there's you know putting some fun and some competition behind. It, I think that'd be great. So yeah, so uh, so uh, anyways, I think that's about all the time I have for the podcast episode today. But uh, thank you for your time, Mike. I really appreciate it. your insight in the sport of track and field. Uh, it's great stuff that you're doing. And thanks for sharing your knowledge with us on the show today. Yeah. Joel, let me say this. Uh, uh, again, uh, you're a go-to guy that I look for uh, for philosophy, uh, technical training, 
especially your conditioning for jumping. Uh, I can always trust your research and the great people that you have, the experts that you have on your programs, and uh, just have a lot of respect for what you do and appreciate it very much. And I can tell you, we're spreading, we're spreading the faith and uh, we're getting it done. And it is a community. And uh, I find that the best coaches out there are some of the uh, people most willing to share and uh, be really kind to those that are, you know, pursuing the dream of just getting better as a coach and loving the sport. Yeah, yeah, that's where it's at, absolutely. And uh, thank you for the kind words. Well, I appreciate your time today, Mike, really do. All right, man. Look forward to hearing from you again and, and seeing what you got cooking on Just Fly Sports. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I appreciate your listenership. It's really an honor to be able to put these together for all you listeners uh, week after week. And I learned so much myself doing this series. And I'm looking forward to the next few guests we have coming up. I think you all are really going to enjoy it. If you have the time, please leave us a rating or review on Stitcher, iTunes, which you're probably listening on iTunes, I'm assuming. That's what the little pie chart tells me. <laughs> uh, or your listening platform of choice. would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. Also, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They also have one of the best blogs in the business on athletic performance enhancement. So be sure to visit them. We'll see you guys next week.